from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner now faces the prospect of being removed from office. But is she really to blame for the car crash that left a visiting teenage athlete a double amputee? And what are the odds any removal would hold up to the Missouri Supreme Court scrutiny? You probably have a lot of opinions on this topic. But before we open the phone lines, we're going to hear from three attorneys. They've done their homework, and they're here to tell us how the system works or doesn't. Yes, today is our legal roundtable. And joining us today is Connie McFarlane Butler. She is a former partner at Armstrong Teasdale. And in 2010, she founded her own firm in Florissant. That's the law office of Connie McFarlane Butler. Connie, welcome back. Thank you, ma'am. How are you? Very good. So happy to have you all here. And we are also joined today by Brenda Talent. She's a longtime attorney. She was previously a partner at the firm now known as Brian Cave Leighton Paisner. Today, she is CEO of the Show Me Institute, which advocates for small government and market solutions for public policy in Missouri. Brenda, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Sarah. And last but not least, today, making his legal roundtable debut is Javad Kazali. He is a former federal prosecutor and attorney and a founding member with the St. Louis firm Kazali Wersh. He's also been on this show many times, just not on the legal roundtable. We are still claiming it as a debut. Javad, welcome. Thanks. So, less than two weeks ago, a teenager visiting St. Louis for a volleyball tournament was hit by an out-of-control motorist. Both of her legs have now been amputated. And St. Louis media outlets quickly focused on the driver of the car that caused the crash, Daniel Riley. Although he was facing felony charges for stealing a gun, he was out on bond waiting for trial. Now, two facts have inflamed critics of St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. One is that Riley racked up more than 50 violations of his pretrial terms, yet he'd managed to stay out of jail while waiting for this trial. The other is that this case, his case, was supposed to go to trial last July. Prosecutors weren't ready. They asked for the case to be dismissed, then they refiled it, basically restarting the clock. I want to examine each of these allegations separately. So let's start with the matter of the prosecutors not being ready for trial, even though they had months and months to prepare for this. Brenda, the right to a speedy trial, it's right there in the Constitution. Is it fair to criticize the circuit attorney's office for what happened with this dismissal? I think it is. Um, You know, among criminal lawyers, I think oftentimes speedy trial concepts, however, are are somewhat laughable in the sense you do see people who, unfortunately, are in prison for maybe years before they actually get their day in court. And that's due to a lot of reasons. But here, um, I mean, what we've seen is like 100% turnover in personnel at the circuit attorney's office. So when you see that kind of turnover, it's not surprising that we get these kind of uh, uh, actions. But unfortunately, it is not correct and not fair for, for defendants who are facing trial. And there, and I would think defense lawyers should be a little bit more aggressive in trying to push these cases to trial. So the Riverfront Times had a story about Judge Brian Hettenbach, who was the judge in this case with Daniel Riley. They talked about how he manages his docket, that the way that he does things is he'll sometimes set multiple cases to go to trial on the same day. He does it without checking the availability of these lawyers. And these are prosecutors. They're juggling a lot of cases. Connie, does that give you some sympathy for the prosecutors when they're like, hey, we don't, our witness isn't even available today? 
Well, it gives me some limited sympathy for uh, the prosecutors that are handling the cases. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of judges handle their dockets that way. Uh, even uh, in family court and civil court, your case rides the docket. You wait for the judge to give you a call. I've had uh, instances where on a Wednesday late morning, I've gotten a call and said, get down here before 1.30, your case is going to start. So that is not highly unusual that multiple cases ride the docket. And sometimes you just have to sit there for uh, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, waiting on the clerk to call your case out for trial. So that's not highly unusual. That seems like a crazy system to me. Obviously, it I'm is. not a lawyer. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm looking at this going, surely there's a better way. You know, it actually, that part of it actually makes sense. So many cases, both civilly and criminal cases, end up settling or a person takes a plea bargain at the last minute. And it's hard to bring in a jury and then when that one case disappears, then they have nothing to do. Mm -hmm. And that makes it slower for everybody else. So typically you're put into the docket in certain order. Now, I have much less sympathy here than I think Connie does here because you're not told from the prosecution side that this is happening the day before. You'll know weeks if not months earlier. And if you can't make it for that one day, then you can file a motion ahead of time and say, can we push the trial a week or two or maybe a month? The idea that all of a sudden the morning of the trial you show up and you say, we're gonna dismiss it, we're gonna start this case all over again, isn't fair and it's not justice. And imagine in some cases, those people have been in prison or in jail that whole time. They wait a year, a year and a half to go, and then all of a sudden the prosecutor drops the charges because they haven't been talking to their witness. They just discover the witness isn't going to be here. If you're doing this competently, you should be talking to your witness all throughout the setup. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you could reset somebody's clock and put them into jail again that's not a progressive idea. That is just using technicalities of the system to give people jail time, and they might eventually be exonerated. Right, and they're stuck in jail waiting for that day in court. For years. Yeah. So District Defender Matthew Mahaffey, um, who leads the Public Defenders Unit here in St. Louis, he was on this show talking about that very issue a couple years ago. Um, you know, at that point, judges had just dismissed cases in three different murder cases because the prosecutors weren't ready. And Matt Mahaffey was talking about the burden that's put on his office, that they had to be ready to go to court to have all of their witnesses ready, and then the rug was pulled out from under them by the circuit attorney on that day. At that point, the average number of days people were waiting in jail for these cases, 344 days on average. Now, Kim Gardner is defending her record and saying people are coming after her because she's a progressive. Uh, Matthew Mahaffey's a pretty progressive guy. You're a pretty progressive guy. I think that the progressive, my progressive disappointment in this office is around the amount of time that they're, pe they're leaving people in jail about the fact that as a defendant, you have the right to discovery, to getting your evidence. People are sitting there months and months asking for the things that they are entitled to. And then at the last second, the cases are being dropped. And when a circuit attorney pulls the case, a judge can't do anything about it. A judge can't say, no, I'm not letting you dismiss. That is a unilateral action there. And all of this is you know, as Brenda said, all of this is tied back to the fact that there's nobody left there. I mean, everybody, most of the people we've dealt with are gone. You have people who are either new, even that second wave of hires, they're gone. 
And you see that there's 4,000 cases in a backlog. There was just a few weeks ago another a lawsuit by the St. Louis Police Department because they had to sue because their drug evidence room was so full of drugs and nobody from the prosecutor's office could come. And there's just piles of drugs and people are getting sick. And so they're like, you know, these cases have now statuted out. Can we get rid of this bag of weed? And if you don't have enough people, this is the exact outcome. Yeah. So this is this sounds like a big problem with the scheduling. On the other hand, this thing had been happening for years with the scheduling. We weren't seeing anybody saying, okay, the, the Missouri Attorney General is going to get involved on behalf of these defendants who are stuck in jail. In this case, we had a defendant who was not in jail. He had numerous violations of his GPS system that he was supposed to wear for at-home monitoring. And yet he wasn't in jail. Connie, to dissect, what, what do you think was going on with this? Is this something where the circuit attorney should have made a motion, didn't make a motion? What do we know from looking at the docket here? Well, from what we can see from looking at the docket, the first charges, uh, the first degree robbery and armed criminal action charges were filed on September 4th of 2020. And then the case was set for trial on uh, July, the I believe it's the 18th of 2022. So almost two years had passed from the filing of the case up to the date of trial. Now, one of the the victim's uh, father in this case indicates that the uh, trial did not go forward because the assistant prosecuting attorney indicated that she had just come back from her honeymoon uh, and she was not prepared to go to trial. Now, there are others who will dispute and say that certain witnesses were not available, but that's what the victim father says. and after the case was dismissed, it was then refiled. Uh, from what I can gather, in the first case before the dismissal, uh, this young man had, a motion had been filed uh, before the judge and indicated that this young man had at least 25 violations on his GPS monitoring system. Uh, and, and this was brought to the judge's attention and uh, uh, a motion to revoke the bond was put in place or filed by the circuit attorney's office and then that motion was denied. Now, once the case was refiled, it does not appear that there is a written motion to revoke uh, his bond or his bail. Now, uh, the circuit attorney's office indicated uh, in their press release or at their press conference that there were some oral motions that were made, but it does not appear that those motions are reflected in the court's file. Yeah, I mean, I know people who have been combing through these files trying to figure out, was there a motion to revoke in this case once it was refiled? Was there not? You have Gardner saying there was. As you say, there doesn't seem to be anything reflected in the court docket. Brenda, is that a problem? Well, I think that is a problem. You know, you want to create a clear record. And I would think as a prosecutor, if you wanted to show that you were doing your job, you want to create a clear record, put something on record, even if it's a written document at a certain point. I mean, one of the questions I have when I looked at or, or read how many violations, because after the case was refiled, he had, again, like over 40 or 50 violations of the GPS monitoring system. If you're a judge and you know that, if people are coming before you or if you're a prosecutor and... <clears throat> And the person is not shown to be committing offenses, would you be inclined to to ignore that? It seems still to me an awful lot of 
violations just to say, oh, well, at least he's not committing crime, so we'll keep him out. Yeah, I mean, it, from what I have heard from people who are involved in this system is that these GPS monitors are a huge pain in the neck and that when the battery runs out, you get a violation. And if you, you know, step a few feet outside, you might get a violation. There's all sorts of problems with these where I have sympathy for somebody who's tethered to one. Yet at the same time, this does appear to be a lot. It does. Um, I actually saw a statement that was put out by a group called the People's Plan of St. Louis. And they really did a good job of focusing on how much we're now using these surveillance type, um, the surveillance type equipment. These, these and, monitoring systems. Right, and you know, yeah. when I worked back at Homeland Security, we use these systems too. And one of the things that you learn is when you have lots and lots of violations being sent in, it's impossible to comb through them. Because these cases are taking on, are taking so long, we're getting, hundreds, if not thousands of people who are out there. And then if you start seeing these violations when the battery goes down, then you're going to start seeing hundreds, if not thousands or tens of thousands of violations. And it's hard to, to go through that. So you know, I've talked to a prosecutor and defense attorney friends on this. They're split on this idea of whether these types of violations would be enough some of them are like, if it doesn't have anything to do with a violent crime, it hmm. wouldn't be enough. Others say, yeah, maybe the first two or three times. But once you start getting into 50 and 100, but almost unanimously, everybody says that's kind of a red herring. The big thing is this idea that people are sitting, waiting for trials, and then it's getting pulled. Because from the prosecution side, you're not holding people to account for breaking the law. From the defense side, people aren't getting their day in court. And when you have that type of dysfunction, that's when you have to rely on ankle monitors. And once you have too many people on ankle monitors, I mean, I bet you there's thousands of people in St. Louis on ankle monitors. I'm sure that's right. You can't, you can't control that. And we've just now farmed this out to a surveillance state. So to you, this all comes down to these delays, this idea that if you are waiting this long to get these cases to trial, you have so many people who are going to be committing so many violations, it's impossible to tell which are serious and which aren't. What do you make of that argument, Connie? Well, uh, uh, I think that he does have a valid point. Uh, you know, we're we're at a point where so many individuals in societies uh, in society are wearing these GPS ankle monitoring uh, bracelets. And then, I guess another factor that you may want to take into uh, account that over the course of this case, this would have been at the height of COVID, and so uh, you know, you had judges who were reluctant to uh, uh, incarcerate individuals and place them in jail because of the, co the COVID-19 virus. And so you have even more people being placed on ankle bracelets to keep them out of jail. So that's an excellent point. I mean, we're, this was a really um, complicated time that our court system was dealing with. I do want to go back to this question of, you know, if motions were made orally or not, because this seems to be a big question that people feel gets at the heart of whether or not Kim Gardner's answers to this situation have any credibility. If a motion was made orally, should a court stenographer have recorded this as a motion to revoke bond? Should this have gone in that docket? Is that just not how things work in St. Louis? It's not how things work in not just St. Louis, but in other places here. Typically, when you talk to a judge, there's two different ways to do that. What people are used to seeing is the whole, you go in front of the judge, the court reporter's there, you're in front of, you're in the courtroom, the bench is there. But often a lot of these things are dealt with 
before court starts, where the attorneys just go into chambers, sit in the office of the judge and talk them out. So there is a possibility that that happened in chambers. The prosecutor made the pitch, the defense attorney made the pitch, the judge said, I'm inclined to go this way, and it doesn't show up on the record. Once you get to this many violations, I would think it's good practice after the first or second time to file a motion in court, either ahead of time or what happens at the end of a hearing is you write out an order. So I would write down, today we had a hearing, defendant was present, uh, prosecution made, request for bond revocation, judge denied, and do it handwritten and it gets scanned into the system. There's nothing like that. So that's this, something the court should have done. I know Brenda was also saying the prosecutor should have also put this in writing, if only just to cover themselves. Right. And I would also add, it's interesting to me that the defense lawyer has a clear recollection of one request. That's right. But the, no the defense other. lawyer, we should say, I, has come forward to right. say, yes, there and, was this and, one discussion. And I would also think as a defense lawyer, I would keep my records pretty clear and, and, and there wouldn't be an ex parte motion to revoke the bond, right? I should be present. I should have some recollection. I should have something in my record. So I find it interesting he only recalls one time that this was asked for. I will take the counter on that. Oh. If I'm the defense attorney and there's a motion and I want it, I wouldn't want a record of that anywhere because if they bring it up again and there's a new judge, I don't want the judge going back and seeing that this has been brought up before. Hmm. So it's to my advantage not to have it written down. And if that happened... No, no, I mean in your records. Or, or in my own uh, personal yeah, I'm, records. I'm saying you would have... Oh, correct. You would be able to answer the for, question for sure. if the news people ask you, well, how many times? Yeah. For sure. Let me refer to my records. <laughs> Brenda, you make a good point there. We are talking today to our legal roundtable. That is Brenda Talent of the Show Me Institute. We're also joined by Javad Ghazali of the firm Ghazali Wersh and Connie McFarlane Butler of the law firm of Connie McFarlane Butler. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Quo Waranto process that could remove Kim Gardner from her office. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. I'm Sarah Fenske, and today our legal roundtable is in session. Brenda, there is a lot of hand-wringing going on in St. Louis right now where people are saying, what is happening to this city? It seems like there's, in certain quarters of the city, there's a sense that things are out of control. Is, is that something you worry about? It is something I worry about, but it's been going on for a while, and it's it's it, it's uh, very, very sad that this tragic incident is what really is galvanizing a more vigorous discussion about this issue. But I would say, you know, when I look at it, lawlessness begets lawlessness. I mean, this gentleman ran, I guess, a yield sign or a stop sign. This is happening every day in the city of St. Louis. I've had people, you know, passing me in the bike lane going, I don't know how many miles an hour, and no and one's are, chasing them. These are cars passing these are, you in these the bike cars, lane. not people. Yeah. You know, no, I'm not going that slowly. <laughs> but, Just for the record. Right. Yeah. So, and, and we can point to a lot of different things that have led to that, but you have those kind of actions going on. We have a, a circuit attorney's office, which appears to be dysfunctional, has a lot of turnover, a judicial system where right now we have the circuit attorney and the judicial system pointing at one another and saying, it's your fault, it's your fault. 
And, and then we have, we can look at what's happening in our criminal justice system, people who are being incarcerated for long periods of time, mm-hmm. and then others who are being let out on cash bail, and no one's really looking at the record and making a decision about whether that bail is, is set properly. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's very problematic. And while we are dealing specifically with the circuit attorney's office, I think we need to look a little further in the city of St. Louis. Yeah, I mean, there are there are some big problems here. And there's also, there, here's an important side of this. We got a tweet from Mike. He says, quote, having been on a GPS monitor and it's several times reporting that I was 10 miles away from my location and then reporting accurately just a bit later, they're not infallible and neither are people. I never realized how screwed up the justice system is until I got caught up in it. I know as a journalist, any time I go in depth on one of these cases. It's shocking how people can get railroaded, how it can destroy their lives. I would agree with Brenda on this lawlessness part. This accident happened a block and a half from my office. I drive past that spot every day. And on the weekends, there are cars doing peel-outs downtown, doing all this. This has been going on for years. years. And we have more police in St. Louis per capita than anywhere else. I don't see any police down there. Like on a Friday and Saturday night, you don't see any police down there. Now, every so often you'll see the city's finest, which are the same police, but now getting paid extra money to be in uh, private security. But they're still not down here. So this, I, you know, I don't, I want to make sure we don't fall into this trap of now we need more police. We need more police. No, we need the police that we have here to do their job. And we know that this type of accident exploded for two reasons. One, the original press release that the circuit attorney's office put out. It was awful. It basically centered herself rather than the victim. And that's when you saw a lot of the politicians come out. But two, this volleyball tournament, you know, I remember right before COVID hit, I took my daughter as, uh, for, with her Girl Scout troop. I put a table up at the corner where Pi is. During the volleyball tournament, she sold 400 boxes in 30 minutes. You know, the, the idea, these groups aren't going to come back to St. Louis if this keeps happening. So my question is, where are the police? You know, they, there are a lot of them. We spend so much of our budget on them. This is a specific area that has a problem. No police. But don't we also have the circuit attorney basically communicating to the pre- police, don't bring those cases to me because I'm not going to prosecute them. I think that that is an issue to, to look at, um, whether that's a manpower issue or that's a policy issue. The I'm basically also saying that just the presence of the police. You know, you're not going if you have a police officer within a few blocks, you're not going to sit in the middle of Market and Tucker and do three minutes of donuts. One should hope not. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. Jenny is calling from Webster Grove. Javad had been asking, where are the police? I think Jenny has a, a slightly different question, maybe along the same lines. Uh, Jenny, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Yes. Well, my question is, where's all the staff? Um, why is the circuit attorney's office so short-staffed? Why have people been leaving? Is it the culture of the office? Um because Kim Gardner is the leader, and if you have a poor leader, people leave, and that's not good. So just that's my question. Jenny, that's a great question. And, you know, there have been some news reports. I think there has been more than 200 percent turnover in that office. That appears to be fueling so much of this. Javad? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a comparison that you can make between the city's circuit attorney's office and the counties. You know, those were both 
total 180s and change in attitude from the previous person. With Wesley Bell's office, we saw barely any turnover. There were three or four people at the beginning who either resigned or were fired. In Kim Gardner's office, at the beginning, there was mass firing. A whole bunch of people that had a lot of experience that were told to let go, that were let go. Two of the people who ran for the same position as her worked in that office. They were both told to leave. And then when you don't have enough people, there's got to be a culture issue over there. And then when new people come in, they're given an insane number of cases. And when you don't have enough people, it just... That you said before, lawlessness begets lawlessness. You know, delay begets delay. Well, I would also add that I think my perception is that this office was politicized, that there was a political agenda that Gardner clearly articulated when she ran for office and she began implementing that, which which would make, I would think, career prosecutors more apt to leave the office. The other thing we forget is that as you have this kind of turnover, you don't have the senior staff to train these new, you know, newly um, admitted bar bar lawyers to, to how to try a criminal case. And criminal cases are difficult, and it takes some experience to know how to prosecute them effectively. I mean, this is very hard work. And as you say, when you lose those senior prosecutors, that creates such a ripple effect. But, you know, you say the, the office came in politicized. I think, you know, the voters had a clear choice here. They had... Uh, Jennifer Joyce's sort of heir apparent, Mary Pat Carl, was running for this office, and they chose Kim Gardner because they were unhappy with a lot of things that had been happening in the city of St. Louis. Um, they, chose her, they chose her twice. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> she, a... She yeah. ran in 2016, and then she ran again in 2020, and she won by 76 or 74% of the vote. So clearly there is a large segment of St. Louis City uh, that at least at that point in time, they were satisfied with the job that Kim Gardner was doing, and they wanted her to remain in office for another, you know, four years. Yeah. And that leads us to this Quo Warento process where the Missouri Attorney General has now said, okay, I know that Kim Gardner was fairly recently reelected, but I think her term needs to end now. Now, this was an obscure term. I actually, former Circuit Attorney Jennifer Joyce was a, a guest on this show last month here as a panelist. And she was talking about this legislation that is now pending down in Jefferson City, where they want to create a special prosecutor to take over all the work of the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office. Jennifer was saying, if they want to do this, and she was not saying that she thought they should do this, but she was saying, if they want to do this, the right way to do this is the quo warranto process. Now we're at a point where we have a quo warranto process. Connie, do you see a path here that could see Kim Gardner being removed from office? Do they have the kind of case that they're going to need under how this, the way the law, this, this law is written? Well, I think that uh, if you print, uh, take a look at the petition that was filed uh, by the AG's office, it is a pretty persuasive uh, petition, and they do lay out a good case. Uh, however, if you take a look at the statute and also, I guess, uh, uh, what the AG's office is leaning towards is that they want to demonstrate that she was willfully negligent. And willful uh, demonstrates some level of intent uh, on her part. And I think that the AG's office may have a difficult time establishing that what Kim Gardner did was willful. 
Now, it may be, uh, you know, uh, that individuals may say that uh, that it was the result of uh, maybe she didn't have the management skills for the office or maybe she didn't have the experience for the office or maybe she didn't have the manpower to do the things that this office needed to do. But I think establishing that her actions are willful will be difficult. So... I felt like I was in law school and you gave me homework, so I had to go back and read about all of this. Thank and, you for doing your homework. And there's a 1939 case called McKittrick v. Wymore that was a suit where in Cole County where the AG's office sued because they alleged that the prosecutor knew that people were having illegal pinball machines and lottery machines and illegal gambling and was doing nothing. That's probably the closest to this case. I think that there's a lot of like sexy details in the petition as it's written to get attention, but it's mostly very anecdotal. It talks about two or three cases. I don't think as written now, it passes muster. Hmm. But as a part of this, the state's gonna get discovery. And if they get the statistics that I think are gonna be out there that show how often they show up to court not prepared, how often, they're doing things that you would expect a prosecutor to do, and they're not doing that. And they can build up the statistical argument for this. This could be a pretty strong case. I mean, look at this one specific case where the circuit attorney goes out and says, I couldn't do prosecute this person because for robbery because the victim was dead. And then you find out the victim wasn't dead, and then they say, oh, it's a mistake. And then the next day, the co-defendant's case gets dismissed because they once again think the victim is dead. You know, I think that once you start delving into this and seeing how often there are issues with not giving discovery over, um, doing these repeatedly, and you can show a pattern in practice, I think that, that this makes this a lot stronger. Are willfully continuing this practice of dismissing cases, then refiling them, then going to the grand jury so that you can get the, the, the extension on the trial. Um, I think the other aspect of this that I'm going to find interesting, because I agree with Connie and her analysis, is how much the political situation, if you will, the political environment where you have all these different players now coming together. Look, this, this incident is one in a series of incidents. I mean, if you go back a year ago when the three murder charges were dismissed, if you had a ground for this writ now, you had a grounds for this writ back then. But the political uh, environment, the media environment, wasn't the same. So mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see how all of this plays out. So St. Louis University uh, law professor Brendan Rodiger talked to Jason Rosenbaum a few days ago, um, and he thinks this could have major implications for other prosecutors if this proceeds the way it looks like it's going to proceed. He said this, quote, a court is going to be put in the position of opining about what prosecutors are required to do and what constitutes sound discretion. And to the extent that the court takes the position that prosecutors don't have as much discretion as we've traditionally believed they do, that could really be a problem. Connie, we're talking about, you know, the voters wanted this progressive prosecutor. They said twice they want this progressive prosecutor. Could this end up suggesting you can't actually be that progressive in Missouri because you're going to get charged with, with willfulness in not doing your job the way that the state attorney general, a far more conservative person, might want your job done? 
Well, I, I think that it, it will have some far-reaching implications. Uh, 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 as my esteemed colleague, he had to dig back uh, a couple decades to even find a case that is somewhat even comparable to this. So I think it will have some significant consequences for uh, prosecutors across the state. Uh, I think that uh, uh, if, you know, your political perspective is different from that of the AG's office, then you may come under fire. So there's also the question of how long this is going to take. I think last week we saw a lot of media people who were lighting a bonfire and imagined at the end of it that there would be the skeleton of a witch found in it. Um, this process obviously was not playing out on the media's timeline. Brenda, do we have any sense of how long this could take? I know she has 14 days to respond here. Right. She has 14 days to respond, um, and then you can go into discovery. Uh, I think my colleagues who are currently practicing are probably better able to answer how long they think. But it can draw out for some time. I mean, yeah. I'll go back to one where she was charged with the ethics probe. That began in 2018, and it was just resolved last year. Yeah. So these, the, these actions can take a long time. And, of course, um, the judge, however, could expedite the process. He can give them shortened timelines because of the nature of what they're trying to do and say that this is such a critical office. We're going to have expedited discovery, excess expedited briefing and a decision will be issued. So but that, that seems like that might hurt what Javad is saying, what the attorney general needs here, which is he needs to dig in to build a better case. Sorry, Connie. Oh, and, and I was going to say that uh, the AG has already filed various motions, you know, which gives the signal that they're doing this on an expedited timeline. Uh, typically, when an individual is served with process, they have 30 days in order to respond. Uh, and they've already filed a motion to shorten that time period to 15 days, uh, and the judges issued the order on that. They've already filed a motion to shorten discovery. Typically, if you're served with discovery, you have 30 days to respond. They've asked the court to shorten that to 15 days. They have already uh, issued a motion, I'm sorry, a notice of her deposition. She hmm. hasn't even been served, and they filed a notice to depose her on April the 23rd, and they filed a motion with the court to set this for trial in June of of 2023, uh, indicating that they believe that it's going to be a 10-day trial. So all of that has already been filed, and Ms. Gardner has never even been served. Now, I'm having some flashbacks now that Brenda has reminded us of this attempt to disbar her previously. She filed a federal lawsuit trying to stop that. There were a whole bunch of legal machinations that went on. I know this process hasn't really played out since 1939, but is there any precedent that she can take this to a different court and try to stop this or slow this? I mean, you could always file whatever you want to file. My big question is, who's going to defend her? Is this going to be somebody within her office that's going to do that? Are they going to have to go and get outside counsel to do that? Who's going to pay for the outside counsel? Is the taxpayer going to pay for that? We already are talking about an utterly overwhelmed office. How much of the office's resources are going to be put towards defending this case? I read the 70-plus page ethics opinion and there was a lot of damning stuff in there. I mean, there were accusations of multiple times that the circuit attorney herself lied to judges there. At a certain point, we have to wonder, is this, and I think Brenda brought up this whole, now we've got judges and prosecutors pointing at each other. How are we going to have fair trials after this? At a certain point, we've got to say, is this whole thing such a distraction that this person can't do their job anymore. And I would add just really quickly, since Barr mentioned it, that um, <clears throat> when you look at that ethics complaint and you wonder about the turnover in office, 
A lot of it can stem from the person leading the office who, who does not exhibit the, the practices of what I would call a fine lawyer. <laughs> So we need to take a quick break here. Um, I am talking today to our legal roundtable. That is Brenda Talent. We're also joined by Javad Kazali and Connie McFarland Butler. Um, coming up next, we do need to talk about Sheriff Vernon Betts. This is very good timing for him that this uh, scandal has erupted in the timing it did. I might squeak in just a couple more questions that have come in on Twitter regarding Kim Gardner. So please stay tuned for that. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. Our legal roundtable is in session today. That includes Connie McFarlane-Butler of the Law Office of Connie McFarlane-Butler in Florissant, Javad Kazali of the St. Louis firm Kazali Wersch, and Brenda Talent, who's the CEO of the Show Me Institute. We're talking about Kim Gardner. Before I change subjects, and I promise I will change subjects here at some point, we did have a question from Twitter. If Kim Gardner were to resign, who replaces her immediately? Now, we know that this pick ultimately goes to Governor Mike Parson. What happens in the short term, Brenda? Any thoughts on that? I would think that they, they already have someone in the office who's a senior uh, attorney who would be the acting circuit attorney if she has to step down. And then in the longer term, Javad, do we know anything about the process for this replacement? I mean, it's the uh, the governor's ability to he put just whoever picks. Yep. My guess is they probably already have somebody in the hopper. Absolutely. Somebody has been picked out. So, all right, last question on Gardner. If a judge removes Kim Gardner, could she still run for and be elected? I that, think she can. She can. Okay. She can. It'd be Come back, kid. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. I see the slogan right here. <laughs> All right. Well, I do also want to talk about Sheriff Vernon Betts. Um, he is being sued by a deputy. This deputy alleges workplace discrimination and retaliation. Steve Chalmers was demoted in November 2020 after seven years as a deputy. He filed a lawsuit detailing this all last September. When Chalmers asked the sheriff why he'd been demoted, he was told it was because he didn't have a single sign supporting the sheriff's candidacy in his yard. Now, Chalmers' attorney, this is Gerald Christmas, who many of you, I think, know, pretty prominent attorney in town, he's obtained an audio tape in which someone called the sheriff, interrupted him while he was watching Mulan, that's a detail I like, um, asked him about the demotion, and the sheriff then repeatedly used racial slurs while referring to Chalmers. This is obviously an ear-catching piece of audio. Will this actually have an impact on the legal case? So this was filed as a Missouri human rights action claim arguing that there's racial discrimination, even though you're talking about one African-American against another. And it cites um, well-known ways that this could happen. But when I read this case, the first thing that jumped out to me is a federal First Amendment retaliation claim. I mean, this seems outrageous. The idea that you would have somebody who's on the government payroll who isn't in a political role and say, if you don't support me, I'm going to end your career. That's not the type of stuff that should happen in America. That's like the type of stuff that you see happening under the the Taliban and other countries. And to say that, if you 
don't express your political opinion in the way that I want. I am going to take my position with the government and use that to injure you. There's, this is bad. And I've got to imagine, you know, Vernon Betts, especially when he was writing his statement about Kim Gardner and what he thought about that she did. Well, he must have been sitting in a room going, thank God this all happened and nobody can look at this type of stuff. So my only question is, what type of Disney movie he was watching when he wrote that uh, statement. When he wrote his statement. So it's been kind of an open secret in St. Louis for forever that there's a political patronage system here and that elected officials can hire people because of past political support. They're hired outside that civil service system that puts in all sorts of disciplinary rules in place. Under that system, can they also be fired for a lack of political support? Brenda, does this go both ways? Well, I would... (laughs) I won't answer your specific question. When I read this, my reaction was, if you wanted to get rid of the guy, you could have just fired him. You know, Don't demote keep, him. Keep, oh, well, you, could, you could have demoted him. Keep your mouth shut. I mean, the, the, the application for the sheriff's office specifically says it's an employment at will position. And so, yeah, it is a patronage job. And just the, the actions here are what I would con- consider incredibly stupid and uh, very inappropriate. I do think that there's a line, though, between the political patronage job. You're talking about hiring my chief of staff, you know, who I want to be politically lined up. This is a law enforcement position. You know, the sheriff's department in St. Louis is very different than the sheriff's department in Madison County. Basically, what the sheriffs are is they serve warrants, they serve summonses, they are bailiffs in court. The idea that the guy standing in the courtroom with the gun, who it's his job to protect everybody in case somebody who comes in the door and wants to kill a judge, isn't chosen based on their abilities. He's chosen on what sign he puts up. You know, imagine if we did that with the Secret Service. You know, Donald Trump could just, when he was president, could just pick whichever guy had the brightest red hat. That's nuts. But apparently that's what this office is. <laughs> yeah, I think that is kind of how a lot of things happen in the city. Connie, I want you to jump in here. You have you have a look on your face of... <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 I do agree that uh, the conversation that was taped, it, that, uh, uh, that those were horrible words that the sheriff used. But I would also kind of like to bring it into context. It appears that the sheriff was at home watching a movie. Someone telephoned him, pretending as if they were a friend, mm-hmm. having a conversation with him. And he used these words in a conversation, which, like I said, it appears that he is talking to a friend when he's having this conversation. He's not in the workplace. It does not appear that he used these words in the workplace or that he made these these derogatory comments towards this gentleman while they were on the job. I have a question as to whether or not this is a proper Missouri human rights case. What, what If he said what he said, was that wrong? Absolutely, it was wrong. But is it a proper Missouri Human Rights Act case? Under the Missouri Human Rights, it's illegal in employment to discriminate against a person based upon race, color, religion, national origin, ancestry, sex, disability, or age. And in this case, it appears that the discrimination isn't necessarily because he's African-American. The discrimination is because you did not support me. You didn't vote for me. You did not campaign for me. 
the Missouri Human Rights Act does not protect individuals against having a bad boss. Yeah. It, you have to, you know, the discrimination has to fall within that certain category. And it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like that in this case that it passed muster. And so, Connie, do you share Javad's perspective that maybe he should have filed in federal court, made this a retaliation or a First Amendment claim? Uh, I think I think he would have more success if he had filed it that way. But as it is currently pled, I think that there are issues with the case. Now, I know that there's some comments about, well, since you're he's African-American, he should have supported me as an African-American. But when I read all of this, it all comes down to you didn't support me. Therefore, I'm going to make your life hell. I find myself wondering, though, as much as I trust both of your interpretations of this, that this is not probably the right venue, this is not the strongest legal case, if this had been a white sheriff caught on tape saying these terrible racial slurs, not only would his career be over politically, but I have to think that that would make for a much stronger case in court, too, that no jury is going to then defend a sheriff who would say those things. Is there a difference because the sheriff himself is black? I think if the sheriff was uh, if the sheriff uh, was white, it would definitely be a sexier case. Yeah. <laughs> so it would be an easier sell, uh, easier sell. But like I said, at the end of the day, this is about retaliation for not supporting my political campaign. Yep, totally agree. So I'm going to bring it back to Kim Gardner here at the end. We began with her. I have to come back to her. Her greatest triumph in her half dozen years in office happened at the beginning of this same month. It feels like it was so long ago, even though we're talking about the month of February. Judge David Mason overturned the conviction of a man named Lamar Johnson, ordered him to be set free. Gardner had fought for that. She fought in the Missouri legislature. She fought in the courts. This was a big case. Now, people who were touched by Lamar Johnson's story have now donated more than $500,000 through a GoFundMe. I think he gave an interview that people really found touching. Javad, I'm kind of stopped in my tracks. Is there really no mechanism where he could be made whole under the law? This relies on individual citizens and a GoFundMe? Yeah, so there are two different ways typically to compensate somebody for a wrongful conviction. Some states have statutes on that say if your conviction was wrongful, you'll get paid X amount of dollars. Tends to usually be a pittance, like $10,000 per year that you were in jail. Or you can sue. And, you know, our law firm has been involved in two of these cases where we've gotten settlements for people who were in prison for many years. Um, The average settlement number or jury number for one of those cases is about $370,000 a year. And the range goes from about $100,000 to $500,000 per year. But to do that, you have to jump through a lot of hurdles. And one of them is something called absolute immunity. You can't sue a prosecutor or a judge for doing something wrong. And then you've got qualified immunity against the police. So the main way that you're able to pursue something like this is if you can show that the police intentionally did something that caused you to go to jail. So in one of our cases, they went to one of the witnesses and basically said, if you testify on behalf of this guy, we're going to hold it against you. In another case, they made up a drug sale that didn't happen. I don't know if there's something like that, but in each of those cases, they take a long time to fight. The attorneys that were appointed to represent him were actually the attorneys that worked with us on the David Robinson case. Mm. So I would imagine that they're going to do a deep dive on this to see if there are any Brady violations. But just without that hook 
of a specific unconstitutional act by the police, not the prosecutor or the judge. You can't get into court on this. But there is legislation pending. The question is whether it'll get passed and signed into law. The legislation would provide compensation for individuals who are sub subsequently found to be innocent of the crime for which they were incarcerated. I would so, point out that that legislation also, the amount of money that they're put into that. It's only 65000 Yeah, 65000 a year. Okay, But still more than what we've been talking about. Brenda, you're here as a conservative voice on this show. Do you think this is something conservatives could get behind? Absolutely. I mean, I think that we're all offended by the notion that someone who's innocent um, has, has subsequently, because of DNA evidence or because we have greater evidence about what, who actually committed the crime is innocent and that they were wrongfully incarcerated. I don't think anyone would be behind like that person doesn't deserve any compensation. I mean, we are talking well, about I mean, the Missouri are, legislature. I would say, <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I would just, just say, I wouldn't support that. Well, I would say that there's actually a case, the Mike Pollack case that just happened, where they use the same mechanism where the prosecutor who did the case can go and ask for it. And because there was a change of venue and it happened in the county over, the Supreme Court says that on that one technical rule, he can't pursue this. So the things when you start looking about habeas and getting people out, this is why people don't trust the system. You can, the Supreme Court of the United States, some of the justices there have said that a pure claim of innocence Proof of innocence is not necessarily enough to overturn a case. And that is perhaps the most terrifying thing I've ever heard on. And I love to end with a terrifying note. This is going to be a cliffhanger for next month. I want to thank our legal roundtable for joining us today. Uh, Javad Kazali with that uh, frightening note here. Actual innocence may not be enough before the U.S. Supreme Court. Usually thank you for joining us. Um, and also, I want to say thank you to Brenda Talent, CEO of the Show Me Institute. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And last but never least, uh, Connie McFarland Butler of the Law Office of Connie McFarland Butler and Florissant. Thank you so much. Thank you. This episode was produced by Alex Hoyer and Sarah Fenske with audio engineering by Aaron Dorr. Podcast design by Aaron. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.